Welcome to the Boulder Bassoon Quartet Podcast, the number one bassoon quartet podcast in the world. <laughs> I don't you know. type in bassoon quartet on iTunes and we show up. We show up. We dominate the digital <laughs> music realm. We have cornered the market. <laughs> <laughs> the great monopoly is born. I'm Brian. I'm Ethan. I'm Count. I'm Michael. You know, a lot of people come up to us and they say, how do you play so amazingly perfectly all the time? Everything you do is just so fluid and flawless and put together like a Swiss clock. Uh, So today we're going to pull back the curtain and and reveal uh, some of the more fun uh, flubs that we've come across over the years. Who wants to start? All right, so the, the recording that I've got is the third movement of uh, Trio by Peter Hope, originally for oboe, bassoon, piano, and I played it with a uh, clarinetist. And that's the music that we used as the, what they call in the biz, bumper music, Yeah, I think, for, last for the, week, last, the last, last two, two podcasts. Yeah. And that's music I've never heard before. I like it a lot. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, the whole trio. It's four movements long. It's really nice. Um, Peter Hope is English? I think he is English. In fact, I'm quite certain the man is English. And he's still alive? Uh, He was a couple years ago, but I think he's um, old. He's like his (laughs) 80s at this point, so I'm I'm not really up to date on his status. Should we listen to this thing off the bat? And then you'll tell us the story? Do you have the recording with you? Yeah, I've got it. It's in the other room. The the, the story is pretty self-evident, and essentially it's a... um, a lesson in don't don't practice for two hours the before day, the show <laughs> before the show because yeah. that was the last thing on the program and the third movement ends on this high C sharp uh, that is supposed to start well why don't you get the recording and listen to it So you had practiced for uh, it was a couple two of hours. hours. <laughs> yeah. So like, I feel. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm a little uh, embarrassed to put this out into the universe on iTunes podcasts. Um, but yeah, it was one of the uh, first recitals that I gave as uh, a faculty member at Metro, and um, the Paul Moravec was on the program. Uh, it was the first time that I had tried to play the Paul Moravec in performance. Andy Warhol says. Andy Warhol says, uh, and the that's a cool piece. It is a very cool piece. The Tonsman uh, Sonatine 
was on the program, and it was maybe the second time I'd ever tried to play that in a performance. And those are, you know, they're really technical things, and I was having a crisis of confidence in my uh, technical ability to have all those licks settled. And so I started practicing in the morning, and I just kept running those licks, and kept running those licks, and kept running those licks, and it was a couple hours, probably. Did it work? I mean, no. <laughs> Not really. I, the the Tonsman went off pretty well, I think. A um, couple little glitches here and there, but overall the, the technical stuff in the Tonsman worked really well. Likewise, most of the technical stuff in the Paul Moravec went pretty well. Um, there was a moment that I tried to turn the page in the interviewer movement, and the page didn't turn, and so it's the bit where the piano has a little solo, that totally fell apart. Basically it worked, like the technical stuff in those two pieces worked out mostly at least as well as I could have hoped, but what it meant was that I was gassed by the end of the day, and you can hear that, you can hear it really in several places in that third movement of the Peter Hope trio. Uh, but especially at the end when I'm trying to hold out that, I guess it's a D indefinitely, and just, I had nothing. Yeah. No chops, no air, there was nothing to save it. I think we've all been there. Mm-hmm. One of my teachers gave me a placebo, but unfortunately I totally saw it as a placebo. I was like, oh, you know what helps a lot is you take a Advil before you play, and it, it fixes your chops, you know, it gives you more strength in your chops. And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> so I tried it, and... <laughs> Didn't work at all. Um, but maybe that was because I was expecting it to not work at all. Maybe if I bought into it, I could have fixed it up. Right. <laughs> Did you get any dirty looks? Um, the answer is no. It, I mean, it was a spot that um, had been a challenging thing to rehearse just from an intonation standpoint. Uh, and so the clarinetist that was playing with me, number one, He's an incredibly gracious man and very kind and generous. And so, no, he wasn't looking at me dirty. He was, you know, giving me a reassuring smile. Um, like, there, there. <laughs> um, and also, I mean, I don't know. Uh, no, no, no dirty looks. Just my own embarrassment. Um, and for what it's worth, Like I said, most of the rest of that recital had gone really well. This episode of the Boulder Bassoon Quartet podcast is brought to you by Forrest's Music. Just about everything you could possibly need to play a double reed instrument is available at forrestsmusic.com, including From the Opposite Shore, the first album by the Boulder Bassoon Quartet, forrestsmusic.com. Do you guys all have solutions to that? What do you do when your chops are like running out? Boy, I don't know what you do. I think the the solution is not to get into that. Like what Mike was saying, you know, don't practice for two hours before your recital. Um, it's really hard to. But what about like if you're playing a Wagner opera or something where yeah. playing forever yeah. is part of the gig? Well, so one of the things that I that I thought was de- worked decently well um, was when. Um, this also came from, from one of my teachers, so he basically said the whole idea with 
your chops failing, it's, it's almost all mental. And so if you perceive, basically, if you, if you perceive yourself as being okay, then your chops kind of are. And there's a certain element of that that's not true because it's musculature and, and that part is real. But there is a certain element that I think if you are able to calm the nerves in your body and relax the muscles, then that does help. So it's like a mind over matter type. He told me the same type. thing. And the reverse, well, it happened just like he described because um, when we were in studio class, one day I was going, I played the Kuzula for the studio and I got nervous. Um, and I'd only been playing for what? It was like six, six, eight minutes or something. And in the middle of the second movement, my chops were just completely gone. And by the end of the movement, I was sitting there in front of everybody and everybody's watching me and air is <laughs> leaking out everywhere. And I couldn't get through it. And that's what Yoshi said. He, he basically explained it to me just like that. So the opposite condition of keeping your chops worked just like you described because I was getting more nervous and my chops got worse. Right. Don't visualize the pink zebra. That's right. All right. Um, well, now you have to explain what that means, Michael. Oh, well, the first um, lesson that I had with Dr. Ishikawa, my teacher at CU, I guess I was playing the, the Andante Hungarian Rondo by Weber and uh, had gotten to a spot where something kind of similar was happening like I wasn't getting the sound that I wanted and um, uh, wasn't able to play softly enough and he asked me what was I thinking about and I told him well I'm thinking about how my read isn't really working the way I want and I haven't adjusted to the altitude and I don't want these notes to sound small and frail and I don't want them to crack on me and I don't want to have a wimpy tone in this uh, soft section and he said well you realize that you're just uh, labeling and giving power to every negative thought that you don't want to have happen as soon as you say to yourself I don't want blah 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 to happen then your your mind fixates on the blah 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 that you want to avoid it's like if I say to you don't visualize a pink zebra the very first thing that happens is your brain visualizes a pink zebra. In the years since then, uh, I think I realized that there's a, a level of you know the psychology to it that your brain doesn't put as much weight on uh, the word not in the sentence, and whatever the the subject is or the object um, is what your brain focuses on the most. So instead of thinking, wait, 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 I don't know what that means. That, that so sounds like grammar. Your, your mind doesn't. <laughs> Hear the don't think about zebras. Yeah. Your mind just hears zebras. Zebras. Yeah. Your mind doesn't put enough weight on don't play with a bad tone. Your mind hears bad tone. Bad tone. Bad tone. And so instead of uh, thinking don't play with a small sound, you should instead think I want to play with a large sound or a warm sound or you know whatever adjectives describe what you do want i mean it's essentially positive affirmation the yeah i studied uh a little bit of how the brain works and you can't unlearn something that's one of the things that i learned so anytime that you learn something it physically changes your brain and if you learn something incorrectly then it, it you know 
it becomes reinforced and it's in there forever. The only way to relearn something is to play it correctly and to go over it many more times correctly than you went over it incorrectly. So it's probably the same sort of thing. If you say, don't think about the pink zebra, you know, you're reinforcing physically in your brain by using those synapses again uh, to think about the pink zebra or whatever the case may be. So enough about pink zebras. I have a recording of a recital from my undergraduate days, not my recital. It was an oboist's recital. She came up to me and she said, hey, I want to do this Zelenka trio. And I was like, those are hard, right? I don't want to play something hard. Like, I'm, I got enough going on and I'm lazy. I don't want to do that. And so I said no. I actually said no. It might have been the first time as a musician I ever said no to anything. And I got to say, I liked it. So then she came back and she's like, there's nobody else. You got to do this. You got to help me out. I'm doing this on my recital. It's important, blah, blah, blah. And I said no. So like this happened like five times. And finally she got me. And I said, okay. And so I begrudgingly worked on this thing. The Zelenka Trio is for two oboes, bassoon, and harpsichord. At least that's how we performed it. I think it's one of these things you can basically interchange any treble clef part, whatever. So it was this woman, Jamie, who was the best oboist in the school at that point. And then the second oboist was the oboe professor and the harpsichord player was the harpsichord professor and then there's me and I do not belong I should not be there and I did not want to be there so we're working on this thing and we play through it and we kind of work it up to speed I'm, I'm feeling you know like I'm faking enough of it it's fine we get to the performance and right before we go on stage Jamie's dress breaks and like the strap that holds the dress up snapped or something uh, so we went on stage late because they were backstage scurrying to find a pin to put that thing back together. So we go on stage, and at some point in the middle of the performance, I think somebody kicked over one of our reed water containers, and something else happened. Let me pull up the clip. After the boy yoing there's something missing. And if you listen really closely, there's uh, you can hear some fiddling around, like some extra noise. Uh, I don't know the piece very well anymore. I can't remember if the harpsichord is supposed to be playing after the boy yoing um, <laughs> but in any event, she wasn't and couldn't because the boy yoing was the music stand on the harpsichord falling apart or something and the music cascaded off of the thing <laughs> so it was uh you know one of those humorously disastrous performances where i'm flubbing notes left and right <laughs> jamie's dress is hanging on by a thread 
and the uh, there's a puddle of water on the floor, and the music's falling off of the harpsichord. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was fun. So um, I think something happened to the oboe professor too, and I remember walking off stage thinking like I was the only one who escaped unscathed, except for the fact that I couldn't play my part very well. <laughs> Jamie, by the way, is now principal oboist of the Orlando Philharmonic. And before that, she was working in Montana, Great Falls, I think. So, so yeah. what's the moral of this story? Moral? There's no There's moral. There's no moral. It's just one of those things. How absurdist of you. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it was, it was funny. Are we supposed to have morals? I can Not make up a moral. How did she finally get you? Did she just wear you down, or did she threaten oh, her professor or something? Or? It, I think it was one of those things. Like, we were, I think, both seniors, or maybe super seniors, actually. And she said, like, I don't want to ask any of the undergraduates because I think the year under me, nobody showed up for school. So there was like an empty slate. So the next person would have been a sophomore. And she's like, I can't have a sophomore playing on my senior recital. And then I don't know why she couldn't get the professor to play because she had two other professors. So why not the bassoon professor? Mm. So eh, she got me in some way. Jerk. (laughs) So this one's going out to you, Jamie. (laughs) Another, I have another funny story of a performance flub. When I was a senior in high school, I had the great pleasure of playing with the New York All-State Orchestra. And we played two pieces, Creatures of Prometheus Overture by Beethoven and Roman Festivals by Respighi. In that order. So in the performance, we're playing at Eastman's uh, Kodak Theater. We play the Beethoven Overture and I think the conductor said something to the audience, and then he jumped right into Roman festivals, which starts with this big uh, offstage trumpet part. Vroom, and then the trumpets go, and they're offstage. So we get to that point, which is in like bar three, and nothing happens. So he stops. He stops the performance, which is such a rare thing. And he looks, and sure enough, the trumpets aren't there, and it's because he forgot to give him enough time to actually go from the stage to this offstage part. So then he made some little joke, and then we started again. And the trumpets played it just fine. And then we got to the third movement, I think it was, and the mandolin player was off by a beat. So the conductor started singing, and you can hear it in the recording and everything. (laughs) So these things happen. If you want to see one of those things happen... Come see us perform. We got shows coming up. <laughs> We're going to be performing. No, no, uh, no. Oh, no. We don't do those things anymore. We don't do those We're things? Professionals we are. Oh, <laughs> well, excuse me. I had no idea. Well, in any event, we'll be performing with or without mistakes. Uh, Friday the 21st in Longmont. It's an afternoon matinee show at the Longmont Senior Center. Well, hey, folks. This is our... Uh, last podcast before Thanksgiving, so have yourselves a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, as you've got your friends and family sitting around the table, turn on a Bully Bassoon Quartet CD and impress everybody you know, and then sell it to them for us because we're broke. <laughs> <laughs> happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. Go Bills.